into what the Lord has for us today. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we surrender this time to you. May you be glorified in the words that I speak. May you be glorified in the uh, meditation and the posture of our heart. In Jesus' name, amen. In 1992, um, I'm going to throw a bunch of Russian names at you today, okay? Um, just a little fun fact for you. If you want to say hello to someone in Russian, you say привет. It's привет. Say it with me, привет. Привет means hello in Russian. In 1992, in the country of Belarus, which is right on the border, that's between Russia and the rest of Western Europe, there's a man named Slava Goncharenko. And Slava planted a Protestant church right there in the capital city of Belarus. It's a place called Minsk. And Slava comes from a family uh, of ministers. His dad was a youth pastor in the 60s, back in the heart of the Soviet Union. And if you're unfamiliar with this part of history, the Soviet Union was very anti-Christianity in a lot of ways. Uh, and so Slava's dad was actually imprisoned for five years for being a minister of the gospel. And that's kind of the upbringing that Slava has. And so then fast forward to 1992 and Slava plants his own church uh, there in the country of Belarus. And, you know, as the Soviet Union disbands, there's really only a few Protestant churches left uh, throughout the entirety of that once empire. And Slava's church was one of them. Two years after he planted his church, Belarus uh, writes a new constitution, and they elect a new president. Their president's name is Alexander Lukashenko, a former Soviet military guy. And after he served two terms in office, Lukashenko decides that he's going to rewrite their already brand new constitution. Specifically, he's going to rewrite it to get rid of term limits so that he can, if he wants to, serve as long as he wants. So he serves two terms. Third term goes up for election and he wins by a landslide. And then his fourth term. And then his fifth term. And he is now Europe's last remaining dictator. From 2010 to 2020, Lukashenko has been connected with um, the murder of journalists that write articles that are against him, uh, the imprisonment of political foes, and all kinds of other corrupt practices. Uh, as he was running for his 
sixth term in 2020, he actually imprisoned and eventually exiled his opponent, a young Belarusian named Sergei Tikhanovskaya. Tikhanovskaya, nailed it. Tikhanovskaya. Um, Sergei was a young um, Belarusian who recognized that their government was corrupt. Belarus was going in the wrong direction, and the only way to fix it is we got we got to get rid of our dictator. We got to get rid of get rid of Alexander Lukashenko. But again, Lukashenko imprisons him and exiles him. And because of this, there are riots in the streets all across uh, this country of Belarus. Um, in the void that Sergei left behind, uh, surprisingly, his wife, Svetlana, becomes the next candidate uh, for the presidency there. Um, after all that happened to her husband uh, and the clear corruption that everyone could see, Svetlana becomes this national icon for the people of Belarus. She becomes almost like the Joan of Arc was to France. She becomes this, this icon of freedom and what Belarus could be. And all through her campaign, um, she gets uh, those phone calls you kind of see in the movies where somebody calls you late at night and then they never say who they are and they threaten you. She gets calls all the time. The government basically telling her, we are going to imprison you. We will turn your children into orphans. This is not going to work out well for you. And despite all of the fears and all of the very credible threats, uh, she persisted. She pushed on. Eventually, uh, election day comes, and in the same way that every election before that had happened, Lukashenko uh, won by 90%. Uh, and if that sounds high, it's because it's a fraud. Um, there is no doubt um, that Lukashenko fraudulently rigged that election so that he could stay in office. The problem is this time, in his sixth term, the movement behind Svetlana was so powerful and so strong that it scared him for the first time. But he pushed back. Eventually, she has to flee with her family to Lithuania, where she currently resides, believing fully that she is the elected president of Belarus. But in fear, she cannot go back and live under this dictator named Lukashenko. And it's under his rule that we return to our first character, Slava, this church planter plants a church in 1992. And for the next three decades, under Lukashenko's reign, Slava's church there in the heart of Minsk, Belarus, has been persecuted in every possible way. But a couple years ago, it took a turn for the worse. Two years ago, one Sunday morning, uh, this is February of 2021, the police show up and break into the church kick out the congregation, and bar all the doors. 
They basically tell them, if you try and get back into this building, you will be arrested and thrown in prison. Uh, his congregation was devastated. They had been in that building for a long, long time. And it was one of the only places that they felt like they could safely worship in this very anti-Christian uh, government. The very next Sunday, Slava invites his church to come meet him in the parking lot in February near Russia. And so February 21st, 2021, Slava and hundreds of his congregants gather in 32 degree weather in the parking lot to worship, to pray, and to proclaim the good news. And I want to read for you a statement that he made that very morning. If you ask me, how do you feel? I will tell you this. We are not going to curse anyone. I haven't cursed a single person in my entire life. I have only blessed. Because we have a different essence. We have the essence of Christ. We bless the government, the people of Belarus. We bless this city and our country. These circumstances will not change our essence, as well as God's essence won't be changed by a man's sinful behavior. He will remain kind. It reminds me of a story about a man who saw a snake falling into the campfire, and he pulled out the snake, and then it bit him. So he shook the snake off, and it fell into the campfire again. And he was asked, you were bitten by a snake, why would you save it? And he replied, its essence is to bite, mine is to save. But its essence won't change mine, it is still to save. Likewise, God still saves. He shed his blood for every single person. He is waiting patiently. What is our response to what happened? We forgive we bless, and we love. My brothers and sisters at Emmaus, uh, today is Ascension Sunday, as, as has been mentioned earlier in the service. This is the day in the church calendar where we celebrate the um, completion of Jesus' ministry on earth, and ascension to uh, the heavenly throne. Uh, across the globe today, Christians all around the world are celebrating the fact that Jesus now sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and he will serve and rule for all eternity. Amen and amen. But I must tell you, here at the beginning of our Ascension Sunday together, that I fear the American church does not quite have the same spirit as Slava's church in Belarus. I fear that the American church has spent the last several decades building thrones for other kings. We have bought into a lie, a lie that dates back all the way to the very day that Jesus ascended. And so this morning, if you'll open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 1, I'm going to take a look at this narrative of Jesus ascending into the heavens. Acts chapter 1, 
going to be in verse 6. I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation. I'm on a New Living kick recently. Um, I brought, I, this is a brand new Bible, by the way. Look at this thing. It's amazing. Um, I was trying to find one on Amazon this week. This has nothing to do with the sermon. You're welcome. Um, they were all like girly. The only one that I liked was a half English, half Spanish. So it's, it's pretty dope. My toxic trait is that I think I can learn anything I want really quick. Um, so no doubt I'm going to try and teach myself Spanish in this Spanish Bible. Uh, but today I'm going to read from the English half. Uh, this is Acts chapter 1, uh, starting in verse 6. Here's what it says. So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? And he replied, the father alone has the authority to set those dates and times. They are not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. After saying this, he was taken up into a cloud while they were watching. And they could no longer see him. And as they strained to see him rising into heaven, two white-robed men suddenly stood among them. Men of Galilee, they said, why are you standing here staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven in the same way that you saw him go. This is the word of the Lord. In this scene, it's been 40 days since Jesus was resurrected. Uh, during those 40 days, the scriptures tell us that Jesus visited many of his followers. And my personal guess is probably a few people that didn't follow him as well. Uh, he encouraged them. He taught them. He probably scared them because he just like pops up out of nowhere. Um, and he ate with them. For three years, the disciples had been with Jesus everywhere all the time. And until his arrest, when many of them fled. When I read the text, um, even after Jesus has been raised, there is this sense uh, among the disciples that, okay, Jesus is back, but it feels like they know we can't go back to the way things were. We're all back together. Jesus is alive somehow, but it feels different. Last week, uh, Pastor Spencer talked about how some of the disciples, like Peter, were even tempted to go back to the way they lived before Jesus uh, to go back to being professional fishermen, uh, because before him, that's all they had known. That's the life that they had built for themselves. But Jesus continued to appear to them, to the 11 remaining disciples after Judas had left. And with each 
subsequent appearance, Jesus makes it clear that although they could not go back to the way things were, there was still a road ahead of them that they must walk. Jesus promises them that he will send the Holy Spirit to empower them along the road, but Jesus is going away. You can tell in Acts 1 that there's still a lot of questions because that's the very first thing that they say is a question there in Acts chapter 1, verse 6. It says this, So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? Now, as a lot of preachers before me have said, let me reiterate, the disciples are a lot like you and me. They're kind of dumb sometimes, okay? They say dumb things, and it seems like no matter how much time they spend with Jesus, no matter how many things they see Jesus do, somewhere in the back of their minds, they're still convinced that Jesus is really meant to be a warrior king. That eventually, Jesus is going to break out the brass knuckles and punch the Roman Empire square in the jaw, okay? Now, I don't know why I wrote that line, but I think I've been listening to Rage Against the Machine this week. Anybody any Rage Against the Machine fans? Like when you just, oh, I'm angry. No, I wasn't even angry this week, but I was like, mm. uh, Anyway. The problem is when the disciples make this statement, they ask this question, it's not like this is the first time they've said something like this. There are several times throughout the Gospels where they echo a similar sentiment. Like, Jesus, when are you going to actually do the thing that you're supposed to do? Like, kick out the Romans. Like, make us in charge. Uh, as if somewhere beyond all that love and repentance and mercy stuff, there is still some higher goal uh, to kick out the oppressors. In, in other words, even the earliest apostles, the one that spent time with him physically here on earth, even they were tempted to believe that power, a very particular kind of power, was a tool that not only could be used, but should be used to build the kingdom of God. My friends, the church has a power problem today. And I'm not talking about this building when the lights flicker, although that is legit a problem. Um, we need to upgrade the electrical, and that costs money, okay? So if you've got some and you don't care about it, Come talk to me later. Uh, the American church has a power problem, one that we have been promulgating for the last few hundred years. I'm going to get some emails this week. I just know it. If I could sum up the evangelical church in America in one phrase... And it pains me to say this. 
If I could sum it up in one phrase, here's the phrase. The gospel is not enough. The gospel is not enough. Over the last 70 years, evangelicalism has carved out its own unique parts in the global church. And in its actions and teachings, both within their churches and outside, they have echoed the disciples in Acts 1, verse 6. As if to say, Jesus... um, When will uh, American Christians stop being uh, persecuted? When will we be be freed from this cultural persecution? And when are you going to restore our Christian nation? The church has a power problem. But before I go on, let me address the truth of the matter is this. The gospel is enough. Full stop. The gospel is so good. It is so enough. The the good news that Jesus has become one of us in order to lead us into repentance, salvation, and resurrection is beyond enough. The work of Christ is enough. The love of Christ is enough. I don't know about you, but I am very aware that outside of Jesus, I am a sucky person. For real, anything that you like or respect about me is either directly because of Jesus or indirectly because of Jesus via my mom, who's here today, okay? Uh, if, If I were to be without Jesus, I would not be uh, the person that I, that I am. So the idea that Jesus would want to sit down and eat with me, a lowly sinner, still astounds me. And if you've never experienced that grace, or if you've never come to like full recognition that at the end of the day, you by yourself, you're not a great person, then I hope that today you come and you meet uh, the King the Savior who wants to change you and love you and share his grace with you. The problem is not that the gospel is powerless, but rather that the church has often traded its power for a more base, idolatrous, and sometimes even violent form of power. And if we are not willing to be honest in dissecting this tragedy, we will never live into the full inheritance of what Jesus has for us. We will certainly never understand the ascension in Acts chapter 1. So this morning, I want to dissect two of the power problems that I think are prevalent in many of our American churches. And I want to invite Jesus and the scriptures to provide us with an alternative way of living and being and thinking. Here's my first power problem. We uh, American Christians have far too often idolized worldly forms of power. 
We have promoted leaders in our churches using the same criteria that the world uses for celebrities and politicians. Who's the most charismatic? Let them be the pastor. Who's the best looking other than me? Let them be the pastor. Who's the tallest also other than me? Let them be the pastor. We have put our faith in big personalities and given them unfettered power over our lives and our communities. Our idolatry of worldly power is clear in the ways in which we measure the health of a church. How many people are attending your church? How many services do you have? How many multi-site campuses do you have? How much money are you bringing in? How much does your worship team mirror a professional Taylor Swift, you know, esque concert? All hail the queen. Okay. <laughs> at what point? At what point did we decide that the quantity of our disciples is more important than the quality of our disciples? Because here's the scary truth. If quantity matters more than quality, what do we do with Judas? Because quantitatively, a disciple. Qualitatively, not so much. And I'm not saying that these things are mutually exclusive, as if you have a big quantity, and that means you're automatically going to have a low quality. That's not what I'm trying to say. But I know for a fact that there are a lot of people in our country who have counted themselves among a quantitative label called Christian. And they have no qualitative evidence. Jesus tells us, you will know them by your fruit. If someone tells you, God says not to judge, they're right. But at the same time, Jesus tells us, no, this is how you can judge. This is how you can know if someone is following me or not, by their fruit. Perhaps the most prevalent idol of power in the American church today, here we go, is in the realm of politics. Everybody take a deep breath. Don't send me an email. <laughs> the gospel is political. The gospel is highly political, but it is not partisan. Jesus is not a Republican. Jesus is also not a Democrat. But Jesus and the gospel message that he preaches is one that inherently impacts all things. And politics is one of them. When Jesus says, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, that's a political statement. But it is not a partisan statement. For too long, the American church has gotten into bed with Christian politicians. 
For too long, pastors have dipped their robes in the blood of patriots instead of the blood of Christ. And here's the big one that I probably might get some flack for. For too long, Christians have believed the lie that this country is a Christian nation and that winning political office is vital for the survival of our faith. Dear God, how weak do you think the kingdom is, people? How strong do you think America is that somehow the kingdom that Jesus wants to build could be overturned or impacted by by America? Oh my goodness. Friends, as a, I'm going to pull the card here, as a history teacher, I do want to make it clear that many of our founding fathers did share a lot of the same Christian values that you and I hopefully have. But calling many of them Christians in the way that you and I are Christians is just inaccurate. It's dismissive of the philosophical underpinnings with which many of them approach the Bible and Jesus and miracles like the resurrection. I'd I'd be more than happy to sit down with you and unpack how things like the Enlightenment and the new wave of scientific and philosophical ideas in the 16, 17, early 1800s, shaped our founding fathers. We'd love to talk to you about that. And how many of them would technically be classified as deists uh, more than theists or Christians. But the faith of our founding fathers, or the lack thereof, does nothing, let me make this clear, does nothing to discredit our country. It does nothing to discredit our faith. The problem is this. If if you've bought into the message that we are a Christian nation who has lost its way and that we need to do everything we can to take back control from all the sinners, you have lost the plot. For as long as America has existed and as long as it will, here is the truth. We are a country of sinners in desperate need of Jesus. What we have seen in the last century has certainly been a decline in traditional Christian values, but the solution is still the same. Jesus. The solution is still the same. The church. Not some politician not some political party, not some big overthrow of the government. Our second power problem is on the opposite side of the spectrum. Our second power problem in the American church is that some churches don't believe in Holy Spirit power at all. There's an entire movement of American Christians that believe in a theology called cessationism. Cessationism is the belief that the gifts and the power of the Spirit have ceased. That after the early church and the apostles, uh, 
the spiritual gifts like tongues and prophecy and healing and resurrection, that those gifts were no longer necessary. And so now in 2023, they're gone. That's what they believe. I am not a cessationist. Our church is not a cessationist church. Uh, the theology that we ascribe to you, we're, we're part of the Wesleyan church. Our theology is not cessationist theology. We believe that the gifts and the spirit that Christ has given to the world still very much alive today. And it's not just because we take the scriptures seriously that we believe that. Because uh, Jesus says, you know, you're going to do greater things than, than I've done. And all through the, the New Testament, Paul talks about the gifts of the Spirit. Not only do we believe the scriptures, but we believe because we have experienced the power and the gifts of the Spirit. I, I have seen and experienced healing. I have seen and experienced the transformation that only the Holy Spirit can bring. Uh, I have seen uh, the Spirit resurrect dead souls. A Christianity without the miraculous works of the Spirit is a Christianity that has been cut off at the knees. One in which the very tools for building the kingdom has been taken away. Jesus makes it very clear in Acts 1. That we need the power of the Holy Spirit in order to be witnesses of the gospel. And put this verse up on the screen. We read it earlier, Acts 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The ascension of Christ has a lot to teach us about the kind of power that Jesus builds his kingdom with because it is completely counterintuitive to the world's power. It is so unlike the power we see in our presidents and our kings and our warriors. Jesus conquers death by dying. He proves his strength by allowing himself to be made weak. When he's arrested, and falsely accused, he does not defend himself. He doesn't fight back physically, nor does he even try to refute the lies spoken about him because he doesn't need to. He knows what's true, and he knows that his heavenly Father knows what's true, and that's enough. Jesus shows us his power when he allows his very creation to turn on him. Uh, the hands that he himself formed crucified him. His power makes no sense to us because we think of power as taking and he thinks of power as giving. We think of power as force and he thinks of power as invitation. Jesus becomes like his creation in the incarnation. He is the first and only heavenly being to take on flesh and bone and to descend from above and take the form of that which is below and permanently do so. This is what's wild about the ascension. In the same way that in the incarnation, 
that the incarnation brought a divine being into an earthly place. The ascension brings a human being into a heavenly place. And he shall reign at the hand of God the Father Almighty forever and ever. Amen. Another way that Jesus demonstrates this counterintuitive power is in this thing that theologians call kenosis. Kenosis comes from a text in the book of Philippians, and it says this, Philippians 2, 6 through 11. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. The word kenosis there, he emptied himself. He took on the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name that is above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Although Jesus is fully God and, and fully man, you can see in the scriptures that during much of his time on earth, he purposefully chose not to use a lot of his divine power. When he's fasting in the desert, he refuses the temptation to create bread. When he's tired and weary from being around the crowds, he doesn't like freeze time. And just go relax. When he's being beaten and tortured, he neither destroys his oppressors, nor does he choose to not feel the pain. He takes all of it in. What kind of power is this? A couple of weeks ago, King Charles was officially crowned the King of England. Some of the world's most powerful people all crammed into a room with hundreds of millions of people watching from all around the globe and thousands of people lining the streets. It was quintessential fanfare and regality because crowning a king is important. In America, we do similar but not quite as fun things when a new president is inaugurated. Um, these moments are, are, are vital. And some might even say sacred. And therefore, we must mark them somehow. This has been going on for thousands of years in hundreds of kingdoms, thousands of kings, presidents, prime ministers. It's a way to mark in the national mind that a new power has risen. And this power demands not only our attention, but our reverence and even our fear. But listen, Acts 1, Jesus has no fanfare. There is no ceremony. There is no crowd. Instead, 
Jesus, surrounded by a few of his closest friends, completes his mission on earth by ascending to the throne above all thrones. I love how in uh, the text, specifically in verse 9 and 10, it says that the disciples couldn't see him very well as he ascended, as if like they were squinting to watch him as they go. Have you ever wondered why earthly thrones are always like elevated? You'll never see a king like sitting below everyone. It's always up above. It's because they want you to see. They want the common folk to see that their king is above them and superior to them. And although Jesus is lifted up in Acts 1, he isn't concerned with being seen. He isn't concerned with the subtle power moves that earthly kings utilize. He doesn't need to. The validity of his throne has nothing to do with recognition. It is not a throne that we have built for him, but a throne that he has won for doing what no one else could do. Save creation from itself by becoming like it, dying for it, and being raised to life. As I close today, I want to point out something that I left out in verses 4 and 5. One of the things you'll notice in the Gospels and here in Acts 1 is uh, almost every scene where Jesus appears in those last 40 days, he almost in every scene does one thing. Anybody know what it is? He eats. Acts 1, verse 4 and 5, be up here on the screen. It says this. Once when he was eating with them, he commanded them, do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised. As I told you before, John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. This morning, if you're not quite sure what kind of king this Jesus is. He is quite simply the kind that eats with his people. He's that one cool adult that sits at the kids' table and is totally fine with it. And the beauty is this, when we come to the table in a few moments, we find a king who eats with us a king who calls us friend. In all likelihood, none of us in this room will ever eat with a real-life president. In all likelihood, none of us will ever eat with a worldly king. But when we take communion together, we partake in a meal fit for a king, made by a king, with a king. And here's the beauty of it. Unlike the disciples in Acts chapter 1, you and I don't have to squint to see Jesus today. 
Because unlike them, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we have learned to see with spiritual eyes. We find him in the bread and the cup. We find him in the eyes of our brothers and sisters. We find him in the beauty of a song. As we prepare our hearts to come to the table this morning, may you know with utter confidence that the king is here. And from his very hands, he promises to feed you. Let's pray together this morning. I'm going to get the band to come up. and In a minute, we're going to do that that last song that they did, but we're going to pray first.